You're listening to Halford and Bruff. Hello, happy Thursday. It's another edition of Halford and Bruff with no Halford, with no Bruff. Uh, it should be myself, Jamie Dodd, and Thomas Drance. We're waiting to connect with Drancer. Drancer's traveling, doing some traveling around the holidays. And uh, as you might have heard, a time or two travel a little fraught these days. So we're going to get try, try to get Drance connected here at some point. I'm expecting him to burst into a segment midway through with some hot Will Borgen takes or something. But uh, yeah, we'll get Drance on the line when we're able to. Until then, you're stuck with me. Flying solo today here on the morning show. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle. You get paid. 1170 Powell Street. And the official automotive sponsor of Halfton Bruff is the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Big show coming up today. Uh, Before anything else, I want to mention we do have a pair of tickets to give away for the Canucks versus the Sharks on December 27th. So the first game post the holiday break for the Canucks, it's the Canucks versus the Sharks on December 27th at Rogers Arena. That will go to the best what we learned submission for the day. So you can start getting them in now. We'll read them all at 830. Remember the the ticket emoji, of course. The ticket emoji. Please do Andy a solid, do a dog a solid, and include the ticket emoji if you are able to go to the game. If you're like currently listening from Hawaii or something because you're there for Christmas, please don't. <laughs> don't. Don't try to get these tickets. Unless you really want to leave Hawaii and watch yeah, the Canucks game for, on uh, For the Tuesday, Canucks versus the Sharks. Yeah. Like, oh, baby. Be a barn burner. <laughs> Got to get back for that one. Uh, but no, of course, they're very desirable tickets. So include uh, your your What We Learned submission, hashtag WWL, uh, with the ticket emoji. Get it in now. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And the best submission will win a pair of tickets to the Canucks and the Sharks. On December 27th, big show coming up. Frank Saravelli, Daily Faceoff Insider, will join us in the next segment at 7.30. Uh, Frank was just on with Sat and Reach on Canuck Central last night. Had some really interesting things to say. I'll get into some of them in this segment, but uh, always a pleasure to chat with Frank and get his latest thoughts on what's happening with the Canucks, what's happening with some of the interesting situations around the league as well. Brendan Batchelor, of course, the, of course, the voice of the Canucks, here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, he'll join me at 8, or us at 8. Hopefully Trance is around by then. And uh, Sean McIndoe, you know him as Down Goes Brown, NHL writer for The Athletic, will be by at 8.30 for a quick chat before we get into the what we learns. Uh, but first, let's get it started with what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. Oh, what happened? I missed all the action because I was... We know how busy your life can be. What happened? You missed that? You missed that? I should mention also that, unlike Drance, A Dog and Laddie, both both here, both showing up. Yeah, we decided not to fly yes. the day after we told everyone not to fly. 
And Drancer's still like, you know what? I'm going to chance it. I'm going to take a plane right now and see what happens. Although we are at like a critical shortage of work passes on this show right now. Yeah, four people using one pass. <laughs> work IDs to get into the building. Yeah. Critically low right now. Not ideal. A-Dog was basically on doorman service. Well, it didn't help that Drance took off with mine yesterday. <laughs> yeah. but, and then flew out of the, the <laughs> province. Flew out of the province <laughs> with it. Um, anyways, what happened yesterday? We'll stick in the NHL. And I made the point on yesterday's show that no matter what you wanted for the remainder of the Canucks season, whether it was a miracle playoff charge, whether it was a, you know sinking down to the bottom of the standings to challenge for Bedard, Tuesday's results went the opposite way. They accomplished the opposite no matter what you wanted for the Canucks. And you know what? It wasn't quite as bad, but it was really more of the same on Wednesday night as well. The Nashville Predators, and I don't even really think they're legit playoff contenders, but they're one of the teams the Canucks would have to jump over. They got a regulation win over, guess who, the Chicago Blackhawks, who are, you know, after that, like, brief early season mirage, just truly the terrible team that we all expected them to be uh, at this point in the season. So Nashville beats Chicago, so that's a team above you getting better, a team below you getting worse. The Oilers beat the Stars, and, I mean, the Stars are just so far... They're they're fine. <laughs> they're, they are none of the Canucks' concerns. So you can't even really look at that and say, oh, hey, a Western Conference playoff team won, but a Pacific Division rival in the Oilers, they won. The Coyotes, they lost to Vegas, and the Minnesota Wild beat the Ducks. So key, crummy teams, the Ducks, the Coyotes, the Blackhawks, they all lose. Uh, key teams you're chasing, the Oilers, the Predators, they all win. It's another really, really tough Night of results. Again, I'm not even just talking about a miracle playoff run. If you're looking for the best odds for Connor Bedard, I don't think there's any realistic shot of the Canucks catching teams like, you know, the Coyotes, the Ducks, the Blackhawks. They're all just so truly dismal. I mean, I guess you could look on the bright side and say at least the Habs picked up a point. I I think the Habs will fall back below the Canucks as well. But hey, at least they got a point last night. Uh, But that was it. It was uh, another tough night of scoreboard watching no matter what your goals for the the remainder of the Canucks season are. Uh, I should mention also in what happened, uh, do a little AHL update. Had such a good time talking to Chris Faber yesterday about the state of the Abbotsford Canucks. A lot happier around Abbotsford. A lot of interesting things happening around Abbotsford, especially compared to what's going on with the NHL club right now. They got another win, 6-3 over the San Jose Barracuda Jack Rathbone, goal and an assist. Vasily Podkolzin picked up a couple of assists. Hoaglander didn't get on the score sheet, but he had four shots. He was being pretty feisty. Excuse me. Yeah, four shots, a couple penalty minutes as well. So good good outing, good performance, another fun performance for the Abbotsford Canucks. So that's what's hap- what happened last night. Uh, looking ahead to tonight, what is going to happen it is, of course, a game day for the Vancouver Canucks. They host the Seattle Kraken tonight. As we discussed yesterday, they've never lost to the Seattle Kraken. Drance was on the show yesterday saying he thinks that's going to continue, that there's some sort of mental block that the Seattle Kraken have. I'm not so not so sure. And look, I mean, it's a home game. Anything's possible. Anything is possible. But the big question, obviously, is Elias Pettersson's status. Still not at practice yesterday. This is a lengthy absence now due to illness for Elias Pettersson. We've seen what it looks like. Not that it's any big surprise. And Boudreaux had some fun with a reporter yesterday who asked them, you know, hey, how much are you missing Pedersen? Uh, Boudreaux, I believe the direct quote was, that's a stupid question. And yeah, we can all see 
how much they're missing Elias Pettersson. It's a lot. It does not look pretty without far and away their best two-way player on the ice. So if Elias Pettersson is not able to go tonight, I I like the Kraken to pick up their first win against the Vancouver Canucks. And I I guess the other question with Elias Pettersson is, even if he does get back into the lineup, I mean, he hasn't skated. He hasn't practiced for a while now with the team because of this illness. What form is he going to be in? I mean, you can think back to the Calgary game. The last game he played, he did not look like him norm- his normal self. And maybe that was trying to fight through illness. Maybe that was the illness just coming on. Whatever the case was, he was already out of form. Not the Elias Pettersson you would expect in that game. If he comes back tonight, and we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens when the team skates because their game day skate in and of course then in warm-up we'll talk to batch about it as well what his sense of it is even if he comes back what position what shape is he going to be in is he going to be able to significantly move the needle for the Vancouver Canucks that's probably the biggest question going into this game against the Kraken but you know the other thing is I think there was a temptation through the first part of the season to kind of look at where Seattle was in the standings and and chalk it up to a fair bit of luck, right? Like, oh, okay, you know, they're riding some shooting percentages, they're getting some nice results, but their goaltending is still crummy. They'll they'll fall back to earth. You look at basically any metric you want, any metric you want to cho- you want to choose from. I mean, starting with the most obvious one, which is points in the standings, but even like goal differential, scoring chance percentage, expected goals, whatever it is. Get as advanced or unadvanced as you want. Basically, any way you slice it, the Kraken are just legitimately better than the Canucks. We're at that stage in the season where we can look at the standings, we can look at individual teams, and I think have a pretty good sense of exactly what they are. And I don't think the Kraken are you know, Stanley Cup contenders or anything like that, but very, very solid, a very, very solid playoff team at this point, a team that actually can control play pretty well, a team that, yeah, doesn't have the strongest goaltending, but hey, neither do the Canucks right now or so far this season. Winning despite their goaltending is probably a good sign for Seattle. Yeah, it's a really good sign, and that might regress a little bit because they are shooting the lights out still, but it's not this fluke like, oh, wow, that team's definitely going to fall back to earth. Maybe they'll even get some better goaltending at some point here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who knows? And go on an even bigger tear. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, go on an even bigger tear. But they're full value for being third place in the Pacific right now. And again, it's just if you were hoping, you know, fingers crossed. Oh, man. I hope that Seattle Kraken team is going to come back to earth. I don't see it happening. They're 10 points up on the Canucks, and I think that is a pretty accurate representation of where these two teams stand right now. True talent level, not just in the standings, but their actual talent, what you can expect from them on a game-to-game basis. We have people texting in this one uh, unsigned. It's a home game, 5-1 loss, chalk it up, and somebody else texting in, 5-1 Seattle. I'm not going to predict that, but I mean, how amazing would it be? I mean, it's a pretty safe <laughs> bet at this point, it feels how like. How amazing I mean, the would odds it be? are probably decent. I haven't looked at the Vegas books, but... Sounds like it's probably pretty I good. I wonder what the specific score... I'm going to look this up at some point in the show. I don't even know if you can do this on playnow.com, but like bet on a specific score, and what odds would you get for 5-1 for feels, Seattle It feels Kraken. like they have to do a Canucks bet They've got bet to do like a boost, like a yeah, special promotion. Canucks section. The 5-1 special. The 5-1 loss. What can you get? It's very popular. Yeah, very, very popular. I do just love to imagine, like, let's say it's... 4-1 Kraken with like five minutes to go in the third period. 
what would the reaction be in the building if they score that fifth goal? Like, I think it would just it would be like pandemonium. <laughs> I think you have to pull the goalie at that point, right, and just just concede. <laughs> Say, let ask it happen. Him, ask him Boudreaux after the game. So why did you pull the goalie at four one? Well, you know, a bunch of guys. We just we want to help the fans out. They're, they're pushing for it. <laughs> we know how much money was on the line. <laughs> we wanted we wanted it to be okay. So you can hold on. You can bet exactly on a five one. So a five one Sa- Seattle Kraken score. Forty three to one odds. You can get that's pretty good on playnow.com. That's actually decent. Forty-three to one. So if you believe it, if you believe this is fate, they are destined to lose five-one. You can go to playnow.com. Forty-three to one odds. We'll see how those develop. What a world we live. If there's going to be a run on the the five-one bet on playnow, I hope at least one person actually does it, and we could see it unfold. Oh, hundred in real time. You know, actually, you know what? If you're listening and you're a a playnow user, or if there's another site you use and they have this bet available. Hit us up on Twitter. Take a picture of your ticket. You can you can blank out the actual volume, the money you're betting, but hit, show us a picture of your ticket with the five one Seattle Kraken scoreline because you know somebody's going to do it. Oh yeah, and I want to. I'd be following that almost more than the game. I'd be like, <laughs> I, this is really captivating. I, I want to see what happens now. Oh, I mean, here's hoping goodness. it's a good game tonight, of course. But yes. I mean, if if history is any uh, judge as of late, uh, we'll see. The two amazing things would be one, you know, the Kraken score to make it like five one at some point in the third period. And then the reaction, not just from people that would have this ticket, but just like in the building, if the Canucks scored to make it 5-2. Just like a celebration. Oh my gosh, it's not 5-1. They didn't do it. It's it's 5-2. The banner would be lowered. It's 5-2. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're making progress. We're staying positive, as Bruce Boudreaux and the team talked about uh, yesterday. So we'll have more on the Canucks versus the Seattle Kraken. Again, obviously, Elias Elias Pettersson's status is the massive question mark hanging over this one. And, you know, just looking at it, zooming out a little bit, two more games before the Christmas break for the Canucks tonight against the Kraken, then on the road tomorrow in Edmonton. So that's not necessarily an easy game. And we were talking a lot, I mean, I know certainly Drance and I on our show, about this six-game stretch going into the holiday break against Canucks. Uh, or against Western Conference, either playoff teams, playoff hopefuls, Western Conference rivals, teams that there's a good chance you might need to jump over if you are, in fact, going to do the playoffs. And that really kicked off. That game kicked off with the Minnesota Wild game, which, of course, was a an ugly 3 nothing loss at home. And now, because of the win in Calgary, the best they could do on this six-game stretch is 500. And that's if they win tonight, if they win tomorrow in Edmonton. And I mean, man, it would be so fitting for the Canucks to muddle through at 500 through a really crucial part of their season. But it is kind of striking. You know, we're sitting here on December 22nd, and we've kind of been charting, or at least I have internally been charting, this season and the disastrous start and the drama compared to what happened last year. And it's pretty remarkable to think that at this point last year, I mean, we were already full into the Boudreaux bump, right? There was this this sense of hope, this sense of optimism, this sense of excitement, and it is just completely, completely absent around this team right now. Even from, you know, look, we get we have a lot of listeners who text in hoping that this team will tear it down, hoping that there will be a rebuild. Uh, at Nathan W073 on Twitter has tagged us and done the bet, the 5-1 score bet. <laughs> Let's go. So people are getting on board. I hope this doesn't backfire. We don't end up losing a bunch of listeners, hey, a lot of money. But Hey, <laughs> this is not advice. Don't take our yeah. word for it. We're just we're just making it known to you that it's out there. Yeah. You're, you're taking on the risk yourself. And 
uh nathan at nathan uh nathan w073 on twitter very nice uh didn't even didn't even black out the uh, the stake he put up 25 dollars. so for a total return of eleven hundred dollars not bad eleven hundred dollars that'd be a nice christmas present that'd be a nice christmas present going in to the holiday break uh, that's nate from comox in the uh in the dunbar lumber text line that's fantastic thank you nate thank you for betting it and tagging us on twitter we really appreciate it uh that's very very good but you know, as I was saying, it's really striking to note just the the absolute lack of optimism, even from like the most diehard, committed, typically optimistic fans we have who text in. It is just so hard to see where the turnaround is going to come from. I know I know Sat has mentioned this a bunch, right? Like there's no you can't even really squint and say, "Oh, this has started to turn around for the Canucks. They're starting to get better performances here. They're starting to do this more consistently." I know the record over the last 15 games or whatever whatever is a little better, but so many of those are uninspiring wins against like the dregs of the league in overtime. And you actually dig down just a little bit deeper than that, and it's really, really hard to see the signs of a turnaround. And man, the difference between this time right now this year and this time last year is very striking. And we'll see how these final two games go, but it could be another another year for the Canucks where going into the Christmas break, you feel like the playoff chase is basically done and dusted for this team. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber tax line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And Shooter Tutor Tyler says, 5-1 bet locked in for $10. So it's a movement, guys. We've started a movement. Playnow.com is going to be like, Oh man, we've got a lot of liability tied up in this potential five-five-one defeat. Uh, should it goes that way, but or should it go that way? Excuse me, but there we go. Shooter, tutor, Tyler joining the movement. Uh, Frank Saravelli is going to join us here in about ten minutes. Of course, the Daily Faceoff NHL Insider and a bit of a double dip for Frank. He was just on Canuck Central with Sat and Riccio last night, and as always, lots of interesting tidbits to chew on. From Frank, a couple of the ones I want to talk about, or the main one I want to talk about, and this seemed to be the one that really generated the most traction uh, on Twitter in the Dunbar Lumber text line among our listeners, was the bit of reporting that, you know, at least according to Frank's sources, the Canucks may have turned down a second round pick for Luke Shen at last year's deadline. And the interesting thing about that is the immediate reaction, the immediate reaction is you hear that and you think, Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. How did they turn down a second round pick for Luke Shen? The thing is, and I understand that. I understand that knee jerk reaction because it seems like such a phenomenal deal for Luke Shen, right? Like you would take that every day of the week. You look at it now, though, there's a pretty good chance that they get more than a second round pick. And you hear more than a second round pick, and you immediately think, what? You're saying they're going to get a first round pick for Luke Shen? I mean, I don't even think that's completely out of the question. I know Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman have talked about that. I wouldn't bank on it. I don't think it's a lock, but I think it's at least a possibility, depending on how goofy the bidding gets. Yes, I do think it's a possibility, but there are ways to get more than a second-round pick without it being a first-round pick, right? Like, you can get two seconds. You can get a second and a third. You can get a second and a you know mid-level prospect, something like that. And I think you look at the returns for, you know, Ben Sherratt, David Savard in recent years, and you could say, well, Luke Shen doesn't have 
the same sort of demand as those guys would around the league. That's fair, but it's not that far off when you look at the way he's playing right now, the minutes he's playing, the fact that he's been able to partner with Quinn Hughes and hang with him for the most part. All of those things, and, and we've talked about all of the reasons that other teams would be really interested in Luke Shen at the deadline. Again, I'm not saying it's going to be a first-round pick, but certainly getting a second this year, you know, barring injury, knock on wood for Luke Shen, I think that's the absolute baseline they should expect. And the possibility of a second plus an additional asset, plus a third, plus a prospect of some sort, I think that is very, very much on the table. So I understand the kind of, oh my goodness, what? They turned down what? They turned down what for Luke Shen? I get that. But I do think that there's a very good chance that they get at least that, if not more, this year. Now, Ramon makes an interesting point. He says, he texts in 650-650. The problem is they gambled he wouldn't get injured when they had a second in their lap. That's fair. It's certainly a gamble. It is 100% a gamble. And I, I can understand the argument for, hey, man, if that's on the table, just take it right now. Rather than bet, oh, you know what? I think we can get more in the future. Just take that second right now. I understand that perspective. I think that's a totally fair criticism. Joe Bob says, just because they might get more of in a second now doesn't mean it was a good choice to decline such an offer last summer. We got lucky with his strong play this year. You got to act based on the info you have at the time. Again, I think it's fair to characterize it as a bet, as a gamble. You got to make bets sometimes. Sometimes they pay off, sometimes they don't. This one certainly looks, at least to me right now, that it has paid off. But I understand the concern that, hey, even if they get more of in a second, you know, I think what both Ramon and Joe Bob there are getting at is that would this be an example of good result, right? Getting a second and a third, potentially, let's just say hypothetically for Luke Shen, good result, but maybe bad process, maybe not the ideal process to follow. And I guess that would be my ultimate concern as well. Did they keep Luke Shen because they thought, no, you know what? We're going to be able to boost his value even more, and we're going to be able to get more for him at next year's deadline. Was that the thought process? Or was it, yeah, you know what? We really need to keep Luke Shen around. Because if it's the latter, that concerns me more. That, to me, is more of an example of not ideal process that might work out, might work out in a good result, but it's probably not the overall strategy you want them to approach. But again, I understand the, oh my goodness, I can't believe they turned down a second-round pick for Luke Shen. I think there's a very, very, very good chance that they end up at least meeting that, if not exceeding that, at this year's deadline, should they choose to trade Luke Shen. And I know there's been some debate about that. I am firmly, firmly on the camp uh, that the UFA Luke Shen should be moved at this year's deadline, and I would expect a pretty good return if they, in fact, do go that route. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Again, uh, you can get your thoughts in, and we're giving away a pair of tickets to the December 27th game between the Canucks and the Sharks for the best What We Learn submission. Get your thoughts in, hashtag WWL, uh, and include the ticket emojis, emoji if you want to be included uh, in consideration. The best What We Learned will win those tickets. So include the ticket emoji and hashtag WWL. We will award them later in the show. But up next, he is the NHL insider for Daily Faceoff. You hear him as a regular contributor here on Sportsnet 650. Frank Saravalli joins the show. It is Halford and Bruff on Sportsnet 650. See, is it? 
Because a lot of Christmas music must be like public domain, right? So we can get unlicensed but still recognizable Christmas music. One time a year, you'll you love to know hear the song. You'll love to hear it. I'm a big Christmas music guy, so I, I appreciate it. Love me some Christmas music. I'm already like sad that there's only a few more days left of Christmas music. Christmas hasn't even happened yet. Yeah. You're sad already. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's how it goes, Malk, okay? It is more fun with kids, though, I should say. It's great. It brings back that Christmas time feel. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It's Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650. No Halford, no Bruff. Uh, not even my co-host, Thomas Drance. It's just me. Just me, Jamie Dodd, here holding down the fort. We'll see if we can get Drance connected at some point during the show. The official automotive sponsor of Halford and Bruff is the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Northstar... Metal Recycling, Vancouver's premier metal recycler, pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. 1170 Powell Street. Now joining me on the show, he is the NHL insider for Daily Faceoff and a regular contributor, very regular, was just on the station last night as well. He is Frank Saravalli. Frank, thanks for uh, making the return trip uh, so quickly here for us. How are you today? I'm pretty good, Jamie. Happy holidays. Didn't you know that Drance doesn't wake up before eight? <laughs> well, Drance is in Ontario now, so it, it he was so there's no the excuse. Show remote. Yeah, I mean there is. Yeah, an that excuse. means it's ten thirty here, and like, yeah. come on, get there, it together. There is an excuse because he was traveling last night, and I think there wah, was a, a lot of delays. So I don't want to, you know, make excuses for him. But there you go. You're right. I should just be piling on uh, to him. So. Uh, I mean, as always, obviously, we're going to start with everything surrounding the Vancouver Canucks, Frank. And, you know, I was I was listening to your hit with uh, with Satin Reach yesterday, and you talked a lot about just the need for the Canucks to kind of commit to some sort of direction and, and really start to think maybe a little outside the box a bit as well. And one of the things that I've been thinking about, you know, a lot recently is rebuilding it seems to have not just for the Canucks but it's become almost this kind of dirty word around the NHL like it's almost like a a moral failing if you decide to rebuild but I look at it and sometimes that's just the normal course of action that you have to take right you tried to be good it didn't work so you kind of got to go back to the drawing board and and start again and figure something else out why does there seem to be this such a significant aversion from the Canucks from other teams to you know actually admitting you know what we're going to rebuild here well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Dirty to who? Because I think that's one of the amazing things that I've learned, not just this season watching a fan base like Chicago go through it, mm-hmm. but some others is that the fan base, and I've seen this in your own market. You've probably seen it on your text line. Oh, yeah. I've seen it on social media. Fans are ready for this. They're sick of the mediocrity, the, you know, where's the direction? Where's the future? Stop trying to you know, make patchwork changes to this team in order to make them competitive. Let's do this right. And let's do it from the beginning. I don't know that every part of the fan base truly recognizes how long of a commitment that is, because I think on the very short term, if you get incredibly lucky, the fastest you can do it is about five years. The Colorado Avalanche are, are like a legit example from 49-point mm-hmm. season to winning the Stanley Cup. And there was a ton of luck involved along the way, including getting a, a franchise defenseman and one of the true superstars in the league in Kale McCarr at the number four spot after losing the draft lottery that year. But 
it's a long-term commitment. And I think the reason why it's viewed as a sort of moral failing is teams like the Canucks, and I'll give you another example closer to me in Philadelphia. Yep. They're proud franchises. They don't believe in waving the white flag for a number of years because, look, every franchise has had its down years and down cycles, but they've, for the most part, for both these franchises, have sort of come far and few between, and they've always sort of been in the mix. And they're just not used to broadcasting to everyone, hey, we're going to sit the next few years out. But unfortunately, Jamie, when you look at the last number of years, there's not much to hang your hat on anyway, which I think further lends itself to ripping the Band-Aid off. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, in the cases of Philly and Vancouver, these are passionate hockey markets. And as you said, there's a lot of pride in those franchises. I, I completely understand that. But I would also look at... You know, the Montreal Canadiens, and I, I think everything we could say about the, the pride and the passion in Philly and Vancouver goes double for Montreal, and, you know, I don't think they've actually used the word, the, the word rebuild, but everything they're doing is a rebuild, and I the, the reaction I've seen from Habs fans has been pretty overwhelmingly positive so far, and I just look at it, and I think, you know, if the Montreal Canadiens of all teams can pull it off, that should be a signal to these other teams that, hey, you know what, it's it's possible, we could do it here, too. Yeah, I think what they're doing is, I don't know that we've necessarily seen the depth of it yet. Sure. But, but I, don't, I think what they're doing is way more, if you want to get into the R word, <laughs> you know, definitions and terminology is way more of an aggressive retool. All right. And yes, they've had some luck along the way in the sense that they did get a number one overall pick and we'll see what Slavkovsky ends up being. I think there's still some more pain to come from Montreal but you can tell with how much they've accrued draft picks and how aggressive they've been in even just trying to get other young players, trading for someone like a Kirby Doc, for instance. Like they're trying to add pieces that can help speed up the process. They're not totally tearing it down to the studs like you're going to see in Chicago, and you've already started to see them pick off pieces like that. They're sort of the halfway test point of what it looks like to sort of be in the middle of rebuild, retool, and trying to be competitive. So the obviously the big one hanging over the Vancouver Canucks that could kind of force them in that direction, whether they want to embrace it or not, is Bo Horvat. And we're in the roster freeze now. When we come out of the roster freeze in January, how quickly do you think the market for Horvat could heat up? Just first of all, in terms of demand for acquiring the player, but also... As we get closer to the deadline, we know the salary cap space starts to loosen a little bit. Is it, Are we going to be in a place come January around the NHL where teams do have just that extra bit of flexibility to potentially make a move like a Bo Horvat trade if they want? I wish. I mean, I would love the action. I'd love, the, I'd love to have my phone start buzzing because I can't ever remember a December that was this quiet. And part of that's just because of the flat, frozen salary cap environment that we're in. And I really hope we're not about to enter a fourth straight season of it next year. I I just don't see it happening in the sense that I think it would be really wise for the Canucks to wait this out as long as they can to bid up as many people as they can and teams. And I think what's really interesting about Bo, aside from the fact that he holds the de facto no trade clause with, with you know, the idea of an extension on the other end of a potential deal hinging on maybe something happening or not. What's fascinating is, do you end up seeing 
non-contending teams, essentially non-playoff teams, step up to try and jump the market because they know they may never be able to get their hands on a player of Bo Horvat's quality because he may never hit the market. That's, I think, the true interesting part of the Horvat discussion is he could go to any any kind of team in any sort of spot that he's, it's all over the map. And then the question is, does he want to? Because, yeah, I mean, if he's a rental, as you say, de facto no trade clause, well, the, a team acquiring him as a rental might just roll the dice and say, you know what, maybe we won't be able to get him re-signed, but we're willing to acquire him for this playoff run. But you're right, it, it, the idea of acquiring him and then signing him might open up a whole other class of teams, and then it becomes more of a conversation with Bo Horvat and his agent as well. And, of course, you know, the other thing that, that hangs over all of this is – We've heard that Bo Horvat has rejected an offer relatively recently from the Vancouver Canucks, but I know Patrick Alvine, when he was on After Hours here on Hockey Night in Canada uh, last week, he also said that they plan to keep talking to the Horvat camp. I mean, do you see a potential scenario where the Canucks come back with, uh, you know, the proverbial godfather offer that Bo Horvat can't turn down? I, I mean, it's always possible, and I think you have to allow for that type of possibility based on the way things happen with JT Miller, like I, I, sure. I thought for sure that he was going to be traded last year at the draft and ended up not being traded. And then to circle back and actually get a deal done, I don't think you can exclude it. And I would be surprised if the Canucks don't make at least one more attempt, if not for the sort of public part of it, which obviously has been very public to this point, which is, hey, you know, these other teams out there, you've got to convince us that trading him is the right move. Your, your package needs to be better now because we'd still like to keep him. And I think that's probably going to be part of the messaging moving forward. I wouldn't be surprised to hear that at some point. But going back to one, I wanted to clarify one thing that you mentioned as as you before you asked the question. Sure. I don't I don't really envision him being a rental. All right. Like, I, I, I don't think. I just think the package is going to be so much more enticing that the Canucks get from a team that's dead set and locked in on re-signing him to a long-term deal that it's going to exceed anything that a contending team that only views him as a pure rental is going to offer. Does that, I mean, I, you know, I'm just pulling up their salary cap sheet right now, but the team I think we've probably heard most as a as a speculative destination for Bo Horvat is Colorado, when you look and see it, their, their need down the middle behind Nathan McKinnon. Would that kind of take a team like Colorado out of the running because of a, a reluctance to commit future salary cap space to Bo Horvat? It might, because I, I view have viewed Colorado to this point as one of those pure rental teams right. based on the fact that you have a McKinnon contract, for instance, kicking in next season. And yeah, the cap going up would certainly alleviate some pain and pressure points, but we don't know the answer to that yet. And I just think there's other more pure rental fits that could make sense in Colorado. Like I think if you're Jonathan Taves and Colorado is knocking on your door after winning three, three Stanley Cups, that sort of seems like the perfect place to go hang your hat for you know, 12 weeks as you try and chase another cup. So I, I'd view, you know, Taves with that salary chopped twice down to two and a half million bucks as sort of the ideal Colorado fit. But I wonder if there's a happy medium somewhere. And this team hasn't been talked about very much when it comes to Bo. But the Boston Bruins 
to me makes so much sense just from a pure spitballing mm-hmm. and and cap friendly armchair gm perspective because they not only are obviously in contender mode this year and and horvat can help but what a perfect guy to pass the torch from bergeron to horvat and not just from a leadership perspective, but also from a, a center perspective. You've got Krejci, you've got Bergeron, and you don't have either guy locked up for next year and beyond. It, it Especially if those guys aren't coming back, you have a lot of wiggle room cap-wise, even though you need a pasta extension, to really make something like that happen. And it, to me, it, it it's a way to also at the same time keep the Bruins' contending window going. It's an interesting one. I think it also probably uh, made a lot of a lot of Canucks fans cringe the thought of Bo Horvat in in the Boston colors. But it's a very very interesting uh, suggestion, Frank. Too soon, twenty eleven, eleven years ago. Oh man, we just we just redid it all with uh, with the Zdeno Chara and Kevin Bieksa thing, Frank. So it's still you guys are me. just gluttons for punishment. It is still very very fresh here uh, in conversation with Frank Saravalli, Daily Faceoff NHL Insider, regular contributor here on Sportsnet six fifty. Just the last thing on Horvat. You know, you mentioned the JT Miller example and how that unfolded, you know, I can only imagine that Bo Horvat's camp and, and his agent is looking at that and saying, well, look, we have a pretty good idea that the Canucks are going to come back with another offer because that's exactly what happened in the JT Miller situation, right? So I I, I wonder if that precedent kind of gives the Horvat camp a, a significant piece of leverage because if it goes the same way as it did with Miller, they can be pretty confident that the Canucks are going to come with another offer at some point. They have all the leverage. Like, they could not have any more leverage because they're in a no-lose situation. Either the Canucks step up at a certain point and pay you exactly what the market rate is going to be or what you believe it is, and you stay in Vancouver, or you go to a team that has a better chance to win most likely, you're going to get the same money, and you can essentially pick your destination now and help chase the Stanley Cup in the same exact year. Like... I don't think there's any downside to the position that Bo Horvat's in and all of that he can thank himself for because he's come out and had one of the best contract years of anyone ever to this point. And when you do that, you can call your own shot. And that's the spot that Bo Horvat has put himself in. He can get away from the drama that's surrounded this team and this franchise seemingly every day off the ice and on the ice this season and last year. And, just focus on playing, which he's been able to block everything out in a pretty amazing way. One uh, last thing on the Canucks here, and the we've talked a lot about Horvat, we've talked a lot about Luke Shen. The other high-profile pending UFA is the you know first-year NHL player Andre Kuzmenko, who's having a great year from a point production standpoint. You know, it's hard to get an exact handle on what his value would be because he's so new to the league, and you know. Have you heard anything about Andre Kuzmenko on the trade market and just whether it's from a trade or whether it's, you know, the team, the Canucks looking to extend him, how difficult it is, is it to really evaluate and, and settle on what a player like Andre Kuzmenko is worth? Well, it's definitely difficult. And I, I'm really looking forward to early in January as we sort of begin the march to the trade deadline. January 3rd is is 60 days out. I'm going to do a deep dive on on what that contract looks like. I haven't done it yet. I haven't done enough talking with, with other people around the league in terms of front office experts to really get a sense. But it's no doubt been impressive. I think the goal scoring has definitely exceeded expectations. Um, 
in addition to the point production. And to get a player like that, it was it was a feather in their cap to be able to sign him. Now the the big thing is, Jamie, what does it cost? And I think there's so limited comparables. Like he's definitely not Artemi Panarin. He doesn't have any right. of the same sort of creativity and flash and dash. Um, but Panarin is sort of the only somewhat recent player that's been in that type of um scenario where he comes over at a later age plays under an entry level contract and then parlays that into what ended up being 2 times 6 different cap you know perspective and and year in terms of the overall cap number but that was for 8% of the cap then i mean if you were looking at Kuzmenko i don't know if you if you say at this point He's worth five and a half or or six percent. I mean, you know what you're looking at is, you know, still a pretty big number and a huge jump, you know, in the four and a half to five million dollar range. In conversation with Frank Saravalli here uh, again, daily faceoff insiders Halford and Bruff with Jamie Dodd, no Thomas Drans filling in here on Sportsnet 650. You know, you mentioned it a little earlier, right? The the specter of the flat cap how it's impacting the trade market right now. And as you said, you know, you're you're very hopeful that we're not going into another year next year of the flat cap. But we know a lot of that depends on negotiations between the PA and the league. We'll see what the revenue numbers end up actually being. But, you know, in the situation where by the letter of the law, it would only be a million dollar increase. We've heard that there's some possibility that they could work out something where they it goes up maybe by three or four million, and it, it, the the increase in the next uh, three or four years is smoothed out a little bit. How likely do you think that is, Frank, that the PA and the league are able to work out a deal where we're not in a flat or almost flat cap environment going into next season? I think it's very likely, and I'm pretty confident that it happens. I've actually never been more convinced that it's going to happen after leaving the BOG meetings last week in Florida because. Jamie, we're now armed with the data that the league to this point has, not that they've withheld, but they haven't really said it publicly. And the two data points that are important is, one, the league is projecting that the debt owed from players to owners is going to be whittled down to 70 million bucks by the end of this year as a projection. It could be less than that if you see, and it could be wiped away completely if you see some big market teams going on deep playoff runs. Think teams like the Maple Leafs and the Rangers and some other you know, huge markets. But the other important data point was that players owed at 1.1.5 billion. I had previously only heard that it was 1.1 billion. And why that's significant is because that means that if only 70 million is remaining, that almost 96% of it will have been paid off. And frankly, that last 70 million would likely be paid off even before puck drop next season although it wouldn't technically help the cap. So I believe with such a small number, there's enough governors, owners, general managers that are in that room that have Commissioner Gary Bettman's ear that are going to say, look, this isn't good for anyone to keep this stagnant for a fourth straight year. It's not good from an entertainment standpoint. It's not good for the game in terms of reconstructing and building our teams. And although they're not going to say it publicly, it's also not good for the players to have less money in the system. So it's up to them to all come to the table at some point and negotiate. I'd imagine that'll happen. 
Um, and I think part of it will also depend on who's in the executive director chair for the NHLPA because we don't know the answer to that yet as they're looking for their successor to Don Fear. But this is a significant issue that the league wasn't ready to tip their hand on. And you heard Gary Bettman speak in sort of, um, you know, rhetoric about there is no negotiation and why would you ask me about that? But there's no doubt that it's coming. Yeah, and you know the point you hit on there about just for the entertainment of the the quality of the product, right? I understand that whenever you're talking about these negotiations between the owners and the players, that the owners are going to look at it and say, "Well, hold on, why would we put more money in the system, right? Like we want all of that money for us." But at a certain point, I mean, it's not good for your league for the quality of entertainment you're offering your fans for every team around the league to be saying, "Man, we wish we could make a trade, uh, but we just can't because of the salary cap situation." We're just our our hands are tied. Trades are such a good, they're such an important part of a sports product today. And I think they have to find a way to facilitate more movement just for, for the fans beyond anything else. Well, not only that, but I think you could actually end up in a scenario where if, if you had, you hit another huge revenue year and that debt is, is retired, obviously pretty early, you could end up in a scenario where the owners end up taking in, if, if you keep the cap artificially low for another season, the, the owners end up taking in way more than their 50% split, and they'd have to write back a check to the players at the end of next season. It's possible um, that the you know that balance is not equitable, and you're going to have to split it up again at the end. So it makes sense, I think, for everyone. It's a no-brainer to get this cap finally moving in the right direction. And I think if you're an owner, you're probably sitting there saying as well, let's do this in a smoothed out way so that we don't hand our GM 6 million bucks to play with right now because they can't help themselves. Let's face it. Who's kidding who? They're going to go out and spend every dime. That's the way it always works. So let's give it to them on a diet in short increases and let's manage it that way. I think that's the best course of action. Frank, really appreciate the time. As always, uh, have a happy and safe holiday season, and we'll, we'll chat again in the new year. Jamie, same to you. Can't wait to talk to you and continue to talk to you guys in Vancouver in 2023, and I can't wait to hang up and go give it to Drance. <laughs> Absolutely. You do that. Uh, that is Frank Saravelli, of course, NHL insider for Daily Faceoff and regular contributor here on Sportsnet 650 with the fantastic insight, as always, and the most interesting tidbit, you know, well, first of all, it's you know specifically dropping the Boston Bruins as a potential dark horse in the Bo Horvat trade sweepstakes. But you know, even more interesting than just the thought of Boston, and I think he makes a really compelling case for the Boston Bruins and why they would be interested in Bo Horvat. But just the idea of looking for the team that's kind of interested in Bo Horvat in a hybrid sense, right? Not a pure rental, not a team that's saying, you know what, we're just going to acquire him for this playoffs and then we're going to part ways. And not a team like, you know, Columbus, Anaheim, a no-hope team that might want to jumpstart their rebuilding process by acquiring and extending Bo Horvat, but a team that maybe checks both boxes, right, that could really use Bo Horvat for the playoffs this spring, but would also be interested in keeping him around, would also be able to offer him that max term deal uh, that you would have to assume Bo Horvat is looking for. Boston is interesting. I mean, I will say, you know, if they're expecting Bo Horvat to come in and long-term replace what they're getting from Patrice Bergeron, I love Bo Horvat as a player, but they're going to be very disappointed. Patrice Bergeron, one of the best defensive forwards, two-way forwards of all time. 
I understand why they would be looking for a long-term plan down the middle, though. As, as Frank said, it's Bergeron, it's Krejci. We have no idea what the future holds for either of those two players, 36 and 37. Uh, I think Charlie Coyle is playing third-line center for them. You know, he's on a long-term ticket, but that's not a guy you necessarily want moving up the lineup. He's 30 as well. So there is that need for a center to come in and somebody who can kind of bridge the gap for the Boston Bruins. It's an interesting fit. But again, I think more than anything, just the idea of trying to identify those teams who would want Horvat for the playoff push, but also would have need for him long term is going to be really interesting when the trade market heats up. We'll take a break. We might be able to get Drance on the line here. We'll see. But one way or another, Brendan Batchelor, voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, will join us next. It's Halford and Bruff, Jamie Dodd filling in on Sportsnet 650.